Greetings, everybody. I'm Scott McKay. I'm your host for the Spectacle podcast today. Melissa McKenzie, who normally is my co-host and is the publisher of the American Spectator, is off this week enjoying a fabulous vacation. Not exactly. But in any event, uh, sitting in for Melissa, we've got George Perry, a contributing writer at the American Spectator. George, how are you doing? Doing great. Happy to be with you. Yeah, well, uh, we wanted to get you on to talk about a couple of, you know, obviously big news items that are kind of ongoing. Um, and what we'll start with, because you've written some absolutely fantastic stuff at The Spectator on both of these subjects. Um, but what we really wanted to get started with is talking about the Trump indictments. Um, and, you know, it's it's weird. This is an election cycle. I don't know that it really has much of a parallel uh, in that both major parties appear to be uh, poised to nominate people who have legal problems. Um, <laughs> however, justified, you know, one may think they are. Uh, yeah. In Joe Biden's case, those legal problems are originating in Congress. They involve his son. And we're going to talk about a lot of that uh, as we go forward. Um, but, you know, it's kind of a classic presidential impeachment for corruption, whereas in Donald Trump's case, um, it's sort of a little different. Um, and so we've got basically four sets of indictments of, of Trump, uh, one in New York City, one in Atlanta, one in uh, the Miami area, South Florida, and then one in Washington, D.C. Right. Um, all four rely on sort of the dreaded words, Melissa and I joke about this, we've done the last couple of podcasts that, you know, novel legal theories <laughs> uh, that are uh, that are being employed to, to sort of jump up charges against uh, against Trump. Yeah. Um, and I guess maybe I'll just I'll lead with that. George, prior to this year, would you ever have thought that the words novel legal theory would be applied to an indictment of a former president of the United States as they've been with Trump. Yeah, absolutely not. And and let me let me for the sake of the viewers give you a little background on this. Uh, I was a prosecutor for 20 years. First at the federal level, I was with the organized crime and racketeering section of the US Department of Justice, the organized crime strike forces. We we chased mafia people around and uh investigated them and tried the cases and put them away whenever we could. And then I was a state prosecutor doing primarily organized crime work uh, and public corruption. And uh, that went on for about 20 years. So I know a bit about running grand juries, did it for 20 years, and I know a bit about putting together indictments. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I've never seen anything like these the indictments that these radical prosecutors have put together against Trump. I mean, to say they're unprecedented, sure, they're unprecedented. He's a former president of the United States, but they have no legal precedent in, in that the theories of liability that they've come up with make no sense under the law. And, and I, I can give you some examples of what I'm talking about. Yeah, go ahead. Excuse me. Um, if you look at, say, the RICO indictment that Fawny Willis, the Fulton County, Georgia, 
district attorney has cobbled together against Trump, uh, it's it's basically a conspiracy indictment, as are most of the other charges brought elsewhere against Trump. And a conspiracy comes down to this under the law. It's an agreement to commit an illegal act. It can also be an agreement to achieve a legal result by illegal means. But let's just stick with the first deposition or first uh, definition. <clears throat> Willis's RICO indictment, which is a conspiracy indictment, alleges that Trump and his co-conspirators used about 160 different overt acts to challenge by which they were challenging the outcome of the election in Georgia. If you go through those overt acts, none of them are illegal acts. And, and I'll, I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about just in general terms. Scott, if you and I agreed to go rob a bank, and then I drove by the bank the next day to case it, and I notice, say, there's a police station down the street, so I go back to you and I say, well, we can't rob that bank. Uh, the setup isn't right. The police are nearby, and so we call it off. Well, we are guilty under the law of the crime of conspiracy. Why? Because we entered into an agreement to commit an illegal act that is robbing the bank, and at least one overt act was taken in the course of the conspiracy and in furtherance of the conspiracy. And that would be me driving by the bank. Now, there's nothing illegal about driving by the bank. That's a perfectly legal act. But in carrying it out, <clears throat> excuse me, in the course of and in furtherance of the conspiracy, that completes the crime of conspiracy. So if you look at Fawny Willis's indictment, she's got 160 plus overt acts, none of which are in and of themselves illegal. So what's her theory? It appears to be that, <clears throat> excuse me, the conspirators had an illegal purpose to their agreement. And that was to challenge the outcome of the 2020 presidential election in Georgia. Well, that's not an illegal act. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, but that's and that's why her indictment makes no sense. Now, it, it, when she first came out with it, I thought she was going to be talking about all kinds of illegal activity. And she tries to do that. And I apologize for this cough, but uh, we'll, we'll make it through, I hope. Um, she has, for example, uh, part of the indictment where she talks about they put together a false slate of electors. And that was going to be, uh, and that was in an attempt to deceive everyone into believing that the Trump electors were the proper electors and not the electors who uh, were, had, were put up as a result of the popular vote in Georgia. Well, the, the fact of the matter is 
when you get into the the factual circumstances surrounding that so-called false slate of electors, that slate was put together for purposes of keeping Trump's challenge, legal challenge to the outcome of the election in a viable state. And it was essentially the same thing that uh, John Kennedy's people did in Hawaii in 1960. And as a matter of fact, that is referenced in the transcript of the meeting of the so-called false selectors, that we are doing this the same way they did it in Hawaii in 1960. We want to keep the legal challenge alive. And if we don't have, if we don't do this right now, then Trump's legal challenge will go away. And the whole idea was once the courts rule on the challenge to the election, it could very well decide that this alternative slate of electors should be the group sent forward to the Electoral College. It's perfectly legal, but they're trying to make it sound like this was some kind of nefarious conspiracy, uh, totally illegal, unprecedented action. And it's not. It so, absolutely is not. In fact, that, that has happened multiple times over the course of presidential elections when yeah. uh, when the, the result in a given state is challenged, both sides will choose electors. I mean, that this is it in other words, it's not even uncommon, much less unprecedented. Yeah. Um, exactly. Exactly. And so you have so you have no underlying illegal act unless you're going to say that challenging an election that you believe is stolen is an illegal activity you don't have the constitutional right to do that as a candidate in which case you can no longer say you're a constitutional republic or a democracy um, no. and then you don't have illegal acts underlying the legal act um right, right. I mean, so I don't, I don't know where she's going away on first amendment grounds the minute a judge gets a hold of it uh, well, but we know you, you you this is based on 50 years of trying cases both as a prosecutor and on the defense side civil and criminal uh don't hold your breath expecting a trial court judge to do the right thing in a highly politicized situation like this they like getting a paycheck the same as everybody else. And I would be stunned if there was a superior court judge in Fulton County willing to stand up and put a halt to this farce. Right. Now, I think the, the best way for Trump and his people to challenge this indictment is uh, to have the case removed to federal court. And in fact, Mark Meadows, who was Trump's chief of staff, has taken the first step to have his case, his part of the case, removed to federal court. He lost in the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Georgia, and now he's taken an appeal to the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. And I'm sure it will go from there all the way to the Supreme Court. And his whole point is, Every overt act that he's been charged with were acts taken by him under color of his office as chief of staff. And therefore, as a federal official acting under color of office, he is not answerable 
<coughs> excuse me, in state court uh, for his actions. And that's a perfectly reasonable legal theory to proceed on. Now, the district court judge in the Northern District of Georgia was an Obama appointee who came up with some unique law on his own. Once again, the novel legal theories, right? Yeah, yeah, another one of those pesky novel legal theories. And so he said, no, Meadows, you can't remove your case. And so Meadows is now going up before the 11th Circuit. One of the things that's going to happen here, and I'm sure Trump is going to follow suit, he's going to try and remove his part of the case uh, to federal court. But the, the case is going to wind around in the federal courts for Trump and Meadows and every other federal official and people acting pursuant to the authority of those federal officials. It's going to be winding around for years in the federal courts. And one of the issues in federal court is going to be whether or not, if they acted under color of office, uh, whether or not they are immune under the supremacy clause for any actions that they've taken. So this could be an end to Fawny Willis's absolutely ridiculous RICO indictment. Um, and there, there are other ways that it could be challenged, but I think that's going to be the primary way that it finally comes apart. Well, let, let me let me jump in and flip this over for you um, to, by way of kind of illuminating exactly how absurd this whole thing is. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, like the opposite side of this would be if someone were to sue, say, I don't know, Jennifer Granholm or uh, some other member of the Biden cabinet who's doing, you know, Green New Deal things um, under color of office, right, uh, that negatively affect the folks in some red state, Texas or Louisiana or whatever, what have you, when it comes to, you know, an oil and gas state or whatever, um, and accuse them of conspiracy uh to uh you know to violate whatever uh state law on on um on uh you know interference with contracts or what have you um and then prosecute them in state court uh under the same sort of of terms that that trump has done yeah get in front of a trump judge at the federal level who says nope 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 this has got to be a state a state thing because i'm taking the precedent of what happened in North Georgia. Um, and so you have to fight this out in a state court in a red state while you're in office uh, and you're being prosecuted and none of this stuff applies. Obviously, if that happened, the, the media would regard it as, as absurd, but I think you can draw, you could very easily come up with a pretty obvious parallel there um, that would completely make a mockery of what Fannie Willis is doing in Georgia. Um, and I, I actually think it would be a good idea for somebody to do it simply as a, um, you know, an exercise in, in, uh, in like Rush Limbaugh used to say, illustrating absurdity by being absurd. <laughs> um, except what you can probably find is uh, much more overt corruption uh, and harm being done by Biden's people <laughs> than Trump's people did in trying to reverse an election that they saw was stolen, right? 
Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I, some of this stuff is really, I mean, it's a, it's violative of the First Amendment for them to do what they're doing. They're not exactly protected by the First Amendment. Well, so, how about how about the state of Texas arresting President Biden for not enforcing the border? I mean, sure. this is a, a, a an act, a lawless act that is causing tremendous harm to the state of Texas. Well, actually, I, maybe the best example of all is to go arrest uh, or indict at least Mayorkas yeah. for drug trafficking. Yeah. Because, yeah. He, I mean, he's he's leaving the border wide open for fentanyl to come across in in amounts that would kill every single person in this country. Yeah. Um, with the knowledge that it's happening and the power to put an end to it and is doing nothing and lying yeah. about it. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. Ken Paxton ought to indict <clears throat> Alejandro Mayorkas for drug trafficking. Well, I and, you know, and understand how how firm the law is regarding removal. It goes all the way back into the 19th century. Uh, and and the, the issue first came up when someone threatened the life of a Supreme Court justice and the, the chief justice appointed a U.S. marshal to protect the life of that justice. And somebody tried to kill the justice and the marshal killed someone, the, the, the assailant. And so the state authorities, and I forget what state it was in, um, the state authorities brought murder charges and arrested the deputy marshal. And that was when the Supreme Court figured out that we can't have this because if, if federal officials are subject to prosecution in state courts for their official actions, then the federal government is no longer supreme over the state courts or the state governments, it becomes impossible for the federal government to do business under those circumstances. So this isn't a wild, <laughs> excuse me, it's not a wild theory. It's it's born out of sheer necessity. Right. That's why it should apply, it seems to me, for Mark Meadows and Donald Trump and every other federal official and every other person acting at the direction of those federal officials. Because Trump was the sitting president when all of these actions went on in which he was challenging the outcome of the election. And you could argue that as a sitting president, when you believe you have evidence of a rigged election that's going to have national consequences, then as president, you should investigate. You should get to the bottom of it. You should challenge that investigation or that election. And so I, I if if at any stage a real judge looks this thing over, I think that's going to be the end of the of the story for the Fawny Willis. RICO indictment. Uh, and as for the other indictments, <clears throat> as for the, the other indictments that have been brought against Trump, I don't understand any of them. I mean, uh, Jack Smith, the special counsel, has come up with something equally ludicrous in Washington. And again, 
the whole theory seems to be it's illegal to challenge an election. Yeah. And the the possession of uh, classified documents at Mar-a-Lago, if you look at Article 2 of the Constitution, the entire executive branch comes down to one person, and that's the president. It doesn't talk about a Department of Justice or an FBI or anything. It just says the authority and power of the executive will be in the person of the president. Well, all of those documents that Trump is accused of purloining and not returning when he was told to return them, they were all created for his use and his use alone in terms of the ultimate authority. He had them legally and he didn't return them when he when he supposedly should have but i don't understand any theory that says because he didn't return the documents when he was told to he is now somehow violating the law uh and then you've got you know the other charges that absolutely well, still that, charge or but anyhow would you not say that it's i mean as as I understand it, the president has plenary power to determine which documents are classified and which are not. Uh, yeah, and, he does. And therefore, it is impossible for the president to, you know, steal or otherwise misappropriate yeah. presidential documents because to take them away from the White House is an act that would, by its nature, declassify them. Um, and therefore, this is a law the president is incapable of breaking. I mean, to me, it's that that just follows. And I mean, it's clearly the case why uh, nobody has ever bothered to prosecute, say, Barack Obama for all the documents that he's spirited away from the White House. Well, and it seems to and me his documents. Yeah, they're 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 all they've all done it. Right. I mean, Biden Biden had him in his garage. Well, he uh, wasn't even president. Like he actually can yeah. be prosecuted for this. Yeah, yeah. He he had he had classified documents from when he was in the Senate and when he was vice president, and he didn't have the authority to declassify anything. Uh, but look, there there's this one recording of Trump referring to a document and we don't know what document it is and he says well you know i could have declassified this but i didn't and uh people like uh, alan dershowitz who's a very bright man says oh this is a terrible thing for trump my position is whether trump believed he could have declassified it or not it doesn't come down to him waving a magic wand and saying, I hereby declassify thee, go and sin no more. The very fact that he has these documents, they were provided to him legally. It was all part of his being president, having the power of the executive in his hands. I don't see it as a viable case. And it's a it's an incredible stretch to want to put him in prison because he didn't return these documents when he was told to. And, and if, you, if you look at the facts and circumstances of the case, 
his lawyers were negotiating with the Biden administration about the return of these documents. And they were told by the FBI or whoever the relevant authorities were, well, you got you got to lock these documents up until we resolve this situation. So they lock them up. And in the process, while they're moving all the documents around, then there's this raid. I mean, think about that. The FBI conducts a SWAT raid on the home of the president. We are now into banana republic territory. To get boxes of paper. Yeah, yeah. And it, it, the whole it's the whole thing is completely absurd. Yeah. Um that's that's like that what we're discussing here are these charges against the president that the news media is in full meltdown mode over. You know what a terrible person Trump is. Well, I'm, I beg to differ. I don't think he's done anything wrong. So um are are you with me that the most perhaps dangerous of um, the four sets of indictments is the one in D.C. that involves January 6th. And I'm not saying dangerous in that the case is in it. I'm saying yeah. the circumstances around it. Like, yeah. I, I look at Tanya Chutkin and, it, you know, she scares the hell out of me as a judge that absolutely is as biased as, as they come. Yeah. Um, and that circuit or that 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 district court, I mean, you are you cannot get a fair trial as a Republican office holder or, or political figure in Washington, D.C. You can't. It's no. been proven over and over again that that is a hopelessly biased jury pool um, and, and, a, and a stacked deck. Am I right about that? No, you're absolutely right. And uh, Judge Chutkin has sentenced 38 of the January 6 rioters, Capitol Hill rioters. <clears throat> in 19 of those cases, she has exceeded, met or exceeded the recommendations of the prosecution for terms of incarceration. She has said from the bench that the riot was an attempt to undermine our democracy, in effect, to overthrow the government. It wasn't a riot. It was an insurrection. It was an attempt to overthrow the government. And she said at the sentencing of one of these defendants that the people who exhorted you and who whipped you up into a frenzy and sent you to go and fight, they have not been held accountable. She's clearly referring to Trump. No and She's the judge who now has Trump in her courtroom. So what has she done? Well, the prosecution turned over, I forget how many millions of pages. I think it was 12 million pages. Of I think that's over, yeah. And she gave the defense uh, about four months to read and absorb <laughs> all 12 million pages. I did the math once. It comes out to 68,000 pages per day between now and the time the trial begins. I mean, this is a railroad job. And so they have moved to disqualify her and they want more time to get ready for trial. The appellate courts, first of all, I don't think Judge Chutkin is going to find that uh, she can't be fair. No judge ever does. 
Right. So she, she won't recuse herself. And if they go on appeal, appellate courts, for the most part, don't like removing judges from cases because they view it as judge shopping. So Trump right. may be compelled to go to trial before a judge who's already decided that he's guilty and she's going to see to it that he goes away. And in a jury with, with a jury pool where in the last election, Trump got about four or five percent of the vote right. and uh, nine over 90 percent of the vote went to Biden. Now, that alone, believe it or not, is not enough for a change of venue, but it certainly right. is an indicator that Trump's not going to get a fair hearing from any D.C. jury. So he's well, I mean, I, yeah, I think that I mean, the the uh, maybe the precedent over there that is the most um compelling is the result of Durham's investigation into the Russiagate stuff. Yeah. Uh, where the, you know, I mean, the evidence was absolutely overwhelming of, you know, misconduct on the part of, you know, um, I can't remember who the, uh, Mark Elias is, uh, uh, what was the guy's name? Sussman. Yeah. Uh, who, who was, I mean, the guy was as guilty as sin. I mean, it was, there was, there was no factual um, defense on his part to, uh, to what he was up for. And I mean, they cut him loose, you know, they, they had yeah, absolutely yeah. no interest in, in having him uh, be found guilty <laughs> at all. I mean, it well, was, well, was an open and shut case as far as that jury was concerned. Yeah, but, you know, but Durham, Look, Durham did a, a very fine investigation, but I got to tell you, he tried to play both sides. Uh, all kinds of misconduct by the FBI was just staring him right in the face. And he tried to navigate his way so that he could use FBI witnesses against the uh, against Sussman and the Mark Elias law firm. And it just fell flat because those witnesses were never really 100% on the prosecution side. Uh, and frankly, the the argument that Durham was making was that Sussman and those guys had had tricked the FBI right. uh, was basically absurd. They knew what was going on. They were part Absolutely. of it. And so... Yeah, it, it, but it, it is an indication of what a pro-Trump or Trump himself could uh, could be facing before a D.C. jury. Uh, the District of Columbia, having spent many years there, uh, both in, in college, law school, and with the government, it's a one-industry town, and Trump is the guy who came to town to drain the swamp, that is to break everybody's rice bowls and right. uh, scatter them to the four winds. So they hate him. They just hate him. And this applies, by the way, not only to the Democrats in D.C., but but to the handful of Republicans who are there. It's a uniparty operation. Everybody's in agreement in the, in the District of Columbia as to how things should go. The two parties, two political parties, should just be gobbling up taxpayer money and going on a spending spree. And Trump was getting in the way of that, so he had to go. So they're going to be perfectly happy to see him 
be taken out by Jack Smith and this ridiculous case against him. But uh, that's what happens when you ever drain the swamp. So, okay, game this out. Like, how, how does this work? Um, he, he appeals to get Chutkin removed, or I, I don't, can he, can he get the case taken out of D.C.? I can't imagine he can since January 6th happened at the Capitol. So well, I, I don't think you could get a change of venue, and I don't know if you could get another judge, right? Well, so he's he, going to have to go to trial there, right? I mean, is there any way around that? Well, here's how the change of venue, excuse me, <laughs> how change of venue motions work. The defense or whoever files for a change of venue, it's actually a right belonging to the defendant. And um, the judge isn't going to rule on the change of venue motion until jury selection. And the reason for that is you don't know whether or not you can't get a fair and impartial jury until you try and fail. So there's going to be jury voir dire. And the jurors are going to be asked all kinds of questions about their feelings about Trump and so forth and so on. But as long as the excuse me, the potential jurors, well, every juror is going to be asked this question. And it comes down to this. If you were called to serve as a juror in this case, could you? put aside any preconceptions you have about the guilt or innocence of the defendant? And could you decide this case fairly and impartially based on the evidence presented in this courtroom and the instructions of the court? In other words, can you be fair and impartial? There is no human being who is ever going to say, oh, I can't be fair and impartial. And so that is the magic question that is used by judges to rehabilitate otherwise disqualifiable jurors who hate the defendant or have unacceptable views of the evidence or the case. So on that basis, Judge Chutkin, I'm sure she will do her best to save as many jurors, potential jurors, who otherwise should be struck. She's not going to allow that to happen. She's going to ask them, well, can you be fair and impartial? And guaranteed, 90% of them are going to say, oh, yeah, I can be fair and impartial, even though they just the got The only through. ones that don't are the ones that really want to get out of jury duty, right? Yeah, right. Well, <laughs> th this is another thing, uh, which people don't really take into account, but I've seen it happen. I've tried a lot of high-profile cases, and I have found that with those high-profile cases, there are some jurors who want to serve. They want to be on the jury because they want to do justice in their minds by nailing the defendant. And this is particularly prevalent when the defendant is unpopular. So Trump's going to be faced with a whole bunch of people who want to get on that jury just so they can take them out. And he's going to, and as for the rest of them who may answer truthfully, no, we hate the guy, um, they're going to get rehabilitated by Judge Chutkin, who ultimately is the one who decides this issue. She's going to say, no, nah, I think you can, I think based on your answers, you can be fair. And no appellate court is going to interfere with that. And the reason for that is Judge Chutkin was there to see 
the potential jurors testify and their body language. An appellate court just has the cold written record of what happened. So they always defer to the judgment of the trial judge as to whether or not a juror is qualified. So Trump's in a huge amount of trouble. <clears throat> if he, And I, I think his prospects for getting a change of venue are very slim. So he's going to okay. wind up being tried before a D.C. jury where everybody hates him and before a judge who hates him. And so he's in, a, he's in a tremendous amount of trouble. The only possible hope is that somewhere along the line in the appellate courts, someone is going to spot the fundamental flaw in the indictment and the charges and reach the conclusion that this case never should have been brought and the conviction is overturned. But that's so, down the road. So, so what's, but what is that fundamental argument? I mean, obviously, we kind of know what it is, but I'd, I'd like to hear you spell it out. Well, it's in just, terms of it, look, the, it, the basic flaw in what Smith has done in DC. Well, number one, Smith was careful not to say that Trump instigated the riot. Because he couldn't. I mean, Trump said, I want you to protest peacefully and patriotically. He made it clear that he didn't want to riot. But when you boil the whole thing down, this election interference theory that Smith has come up with, it comes back to the same thing. Trump was challenging the outcome of the election. And in Smith's mind, that's illegal. It, <laughs> and it's not. It's not. So that's I mean, if it is, then where's Hillary Clinton's indictment? Because I mean, I, yeah. I George, I don't know if you remember this, but I was actually friends with most of the electors in Louisiana in 2016, um, you know, who were elected when when Trump won the state. Mm -hmm. Um, and the Hillary Clinton campaign ginned up tens of thousands of callers and emailers and texters who harass these people no end every single one of them you know was like sending me a texter or a phone call or an email hey um i have a new phone because i had to get rid of my old phone because my number got out and i was getting calls all you know all day and all night yeah. from left-wing nuts in Oregon and Vermont and Minnesota and all these other places demanding that I go faithless and yeah. not support Trump for president. Um, yeah. And that was all done on the basis that somehow Trump had, Trump and Putin had stolen the election. Um, so, I, I mean, I guess harassing electors uh, into going faithless is a, a legal act to protest an election that you lost, but the things that Trump did are illegal. Scott, um, I remember seeing TV spots with Martin Sheen and other Hollywood celebrities yes. saying, yes. you can save the Republic. You can, <laughs> you know, you don't have to vote. You don't have to cast your electoral vote for Trump. You can save us all. Be in, in right. effect, be a faithless elector. Nobody arrested Martin Sheen. Nobody cried foul. That was all perfectly kosher as far as they were concerned. And in fact, you can be a faithless elector. It's not 
good for the republic, but you know, you're the you're basically when you cast your vote for president, you're voting for that candidate's slate of electors, and they're expected to remain loyal to the candidate. So yeah, you had Martin Sheen. I mean, these people, these crazy people calling you had probably been watching Martin Sheen on television. So. <laughs> yeah, there's your grand conspiracy, right? It's got Hollywood. It's got all the TV executives. It's got the yeah. local uh, television affiliates to it. I mean, yeah. you know, somebody really missed the boat to, to put that in. There. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, it's it's a. It's a really interesting thing, and I guess this is our segue into the other side of the, uh, okay. the presidential legal sweepstakes, because you know we go from Trump, who's apparently criminally guilty of um, of of protesting an election that he thinks is stolen from him, and can bring evidence, maybe not to convince everyone that the election was stolen. But certainly to convince uh, a reasonable observer that he had reason to believe in his mind that the election was stolen. So there goes your mens rea here. Yeah. Right? Like if he thinks the election is stolen from him, it's not like he's trying to defraud the public. You can call him a crank, but that doesn't make him criminal in this case. Well, yeah, like one of the things about Fawny Willis's indictment is if they ever had a trial on it. She's open. She not only cited the effort to undermine or overturn the Georgia election, she got into all the other swing states in her indictment. Don't ask me why she would do anything that dumb, but she did. Uh, and so if that case ever had to be tried, she's opened the door to Trump bringing in all of the evidence of all the shenanigans that went on in all the swing states. <clears throat> and everybody, everybody who says, well, you know, courts have just turned them down, turned them down. The fact of the matter is there had been, I think, a, close to 90 cases that were brought. The vast majority of them, the courts refused to hear the cases on jurisdictional grounds, or you filed your claim too late, or you filed your claim too early, or, you know, you, you were talking about this on Tuesday, but today is Thursday, so you lose. I mean, all the usual nonsense that courts do when they want to duck an issue. The handful of cases that were heard on the merits, Trump won them all, but they were only on segments that were not outcome determinative in those states. But he's been able to come up with the evidence to make his claim stick, and if he had to go to trial in in uh, Georgia, he can. He's got tons of evidence he can present. I mean, it, just in Georgia alone, which which by the way, I was born and raised in Atlanta, and so I have a particular interest in in that setup down there. But I remember on election night when they stopped counting yeah. in Fulton County because of a water leak. Do you remember that one? And there was no water leak. Exactly. It yeah, they said, yeah, they got a water leak, so we suspend counting. Everybody go home, and everybody went home except for some election workers who kept on counting. And right. gee, but yeah, and the water, the water main break turned out to be a leaky toilet that had been leaking for weeks. So... <laughs> <laughs> 
Now, and Trump can get into all of this right. in defense of why they believe that things weren't exactly kosher in Georgia and why, you know, the, the, the voting was suspended in the middle of the night in Wayne County, Michigan, and right. nobody knows why. And when they started counting again, they had put up cardboard around all the windows so that observers couldn't see the count. In right. Philadelphia, where I am right now, they kept the Republican canvassers, the people who were supposed to be able to observe the count in Philadelphia, uh, they kept them out of the convention center. And then once they gained admission to the convention center, they kept them a minimum of 120 feet away from the counting table. So nobody could tell what was going on. Exactly. <laughs> Which, by the way, I, I have to add this, we haven't had an honest election in Philadelphia since 1636. So, <laughs> so we weren't about right. to start in 2020 and we're not going to do it in 2024. <laughs> You're going to see, I mean, we now have a new law in Pennsylvania, by the way, um, that when you register for your driver's license, you get registered to vote. But boom. Right. Uh, and so we're going to have the well, same dog and pony show in 2024 in Pennsylvania that we had in 2020. I, I, I think there's very little doubt about that. I, I would I would mention the Wisconsin Supreme Court found that the election in 2020 in Wisconsin was illegally held. Yeah. And that, that was completely glossed over in the media, largely yeah. because the Supreme Court didn't order the election to be decertified. They didn't yeah. think that that was their that that was their um, that their purview. It was the state legislature that needed to do that. And of course, there, there were Republican majority in the state legislature that that um, you know didn't want to go that far. For they went reason. well, like like Republicans in in Pennsylvania and elsewhere, they just went and hid under their desk. Um, they they didn't want to look. The, the thing that, that people need to keep in, in mind is Trump conducted a hostile takeover of the Republican Party. I have plenty of friends here in Pennsylvania who are political pros. They're Republican political operatives, and they hate Trump because he upset their apple cart the same way he upset the Democrat apple cart. And they weren't about to break a sweat sticking up for Trump in the legislature right. or anywhere else. And those in the legislature who did stick up for Trump, they got massacred. I mean, they have had their committee assignments taken away. Of course, now we have a, a Democrat majority in the in the House, but back then we had a Republican majority. They had their committee assignments taken. Uh, just all kinds of things happened to them. And so, yeah, nobody was really willing to stick up for Trump. I mean, Trump... I always maintain Trump's not really a Republican. He's Trump. And he right. and the irony here is he saved the Republican Party from irrelevance. He turned it from a bunch of yeah. people hanging out at country clubs and complaining about, you know, the greens fees are too high uh, and and turned right. it into a workers party. He drew, yeah, well, he drew vast yeah. numbers of people who otherwise never would have voted Republican in their lives. He drew those people to the party and saved the Republican Party, and they hate him for it. Well, and, and Melissa and I have talked about 
you know um i mean you know trump is has was never really a conservative yeah he was a radical centrist yeah um you know that really if you want to if you want to find a sort of a prequel to trump it's ross perot yeah um you know it, it's I mean, and what he did when he came along was that he he re-energized the republican party um by resurrecting a lot of things that had been considered conservative, but yeah. the party, based based on its thought leaders being corrupted and bought off by corporate interests, yeah, um, had gotten away from. Like the you know the entire idea of um, free trade, yeah, that's a conservative value. But when you're trying to conduct free trade with China, for example, which is a mercantilist regime that's yeah. bent on trying to screw you yeah. <laughs> and they buy up all of your politicians so that in the name of free trade, you're conducting um, stupid trade with a non-free trade entity that the yeah. government is controlling all of the trade with you and doing it at your uh, disadvantage. Um, you know, it's like, I can't remember whose line it was. It was like, if you don't have an industrial policy, and you're trading with China, who does have an industrial policy. Your industrial policy is therefore China's industrial policy, <laughs> which is not made for you. Yeah. But they called this free trade. And it's like, okay, um, that's not defensible in any way other than, you know, you're paid to say certain things and yeah. obfuscate what the truth is. And that is what the Republican Party had become. This just being one example. Trump came along and said, all this is stupid. Let's go back to center and let's figure out some, you know, some smarter policies that actually benefit the American people. Um, you know, and, and like what I keep saying is, you know, that kind of Mitch McConnell Bush Republicanism, that's a Republican Party even Republican voters can't stand. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, the, yeah, those are the people who's, you know, in whose hands Trump was in 2020 after this election. Hey, guys, I need your help. Yeah. <laughs> not yeah. likely yeah um you know well, it, when he was elected in 2016 didn't he have a republican majority in the house and the senate and yeah and, a fat lot of good it did yeah exactly what happened to his legislative program it disappeared it, right. it was stalled i mean paul ryan made it clear uh we're not going to do anything this guy wants because it doesn't fit with our agenda um and, and he look, got his tax cuts, which actually was really yeah. helpful in growing the, the yeah. economy and bringing some of that foreign, uh, foreign stashed capital back in the, to yeah. America. That was good. Everything yeah. else he had to do was was uh, the power of the pen, right? I mean, it, you know, legislatively, those were two wasted years. Yeah, and nobody helped him with the stupid Russia stuff. I mean, nobody helped him with that. That should have been done. Congress should have defunded that. The minute was obvious that it was a that it was a, a well. He, Trump basically got rolled by Washington. He got rolled. He totally. I mean, he look at he he the, he thought the FBI was you know Jadger Hoover and the boys, and Hoover by the way was around when I was in the show. He was no box of chocolates. Don't get me wrong. Exactly. But um, you know. Trump was getting screwed by the intelligence community. They framed Michael Flynn. I mean, I could go oh. on and on and on. And Trump got rolled on COVID. Uh, um, 
he, you know, he, he thought, well, you know, this guy Fauci, he seems to be like a smart guy. And, and, you know, and Fauci just shivved him on uh, viable treatments for COVID because if there was a viable, recognized viable treatment for COVID, they couldn't get an emergency use authorization for the super expensive vaccines. So, and Trump just kind of went along with it. Exactly. And I think he's learned his lesson. And if he comes back in 2024, he's going to be a lot smarter about who he appoints and where he goes to for advice. Um, which is another reason why they got to get rid of this guy. I mean, <laughs> yeah, they're just not gonna it's, it's a, the, the one thing about you know Trump in in twenty four is nobody has any illusions about what this is going to mean, right? Like, I mean, it's this is, somebody's going to go down hard at the end of that election. See, it's either Trump, he runs and loses, and they will absolutely make sure that he he's destroyed utterly. Or he goes in and it's, uh, you know, we, we were, a couple of us were having this conversation. I don't know if you remember the song uh, that uh, Ben Folds 5 sang. It's uh, One Angry Dwarf and 200 Solemn Faces. <laughs> that's that's going to be Trump, right? He goes in in 24 and it's like, well, let's see what we've got here. And, and uh, everybody's going to be very sad in Washington. And, you know, and I... I I take it he can pardon himself, and I'm sure that that'll be his. Uh, his oh, he his, he, he better pardon himself because because that may be the only thing that saves him. I mean, he can't pardon himself on the Georgia charges or the crazy case in New York because the pardon. You, oh wait, are you are you sure about that? Because I, I agree with you, but I've read some some things that state otherwise. Hey, I um, hope I hope these other people are right. I just have never heard that, but. I'm not an expert on pardon power. I'll I just watch Bill Clinton selling pardons towards the end of his uh, presidency, and I I knew enough right. to know that that was wrong. Uh, <laughs> right. But beyond that, I I couldn't tell you. Well, I I would imagine that Trump can finagle himself a pardon in Georgia if if he needs to. Well, Simply, he and Brian Kemp may not get along, but. He's going to have enough stroke with Kemp as to say, you need to make this go away or else I'm going to make it hurt. Well, I would I'd um, expect that, that Kemp would ultimately roll over. I mean, Kemp, New York may be a little different story. Well, yeah, New York could be a real problem. On like the that, other hand, that one can get kind of sticky. Um, you know, it, it, it's the same old story. The New York case makes no sense. It's a bookkeeping right. case. And uh, but look, he's in Manhattan. There are no jurors in Manhattan looking out for Donald Trump. There are no judges there. And so he's in trouble there. But if he can pardon himself in New York, I think he should go for it. Just let's have a clean slate. But he said the other day he, wasn't gonna, he may not pardon himself, which I thought, oh, come on. Let's just put it out there and let people scream. Uh, <laughs> How are you going to, like, you're the president of the United States, you go to New York and NYPD tries to arrest you? Yeah, like, that'd be interesting. I, I don't, I'm not sure exactly how, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's the, Chinese, the Chinese state, may you live in interesting times, and that's not a 
complimentary thing. It's meant as a well, curse. I'll tell you a quick anecdote. Uh, <laughs> when I was with the feds, I was doing an investigation of the uh, Rochester Police Narcotics Squad, and <laughs> we went to seize all the drug exhibits out of their laboratory. And so I showed up with some, back then they were called Bureau of Narcotics Agents, but now they're called DEA agents. I showed up, you know, with a with a subpoena, douches take them and a search warrant and a whatever. And we walk into the lab and I said, okay, I want all your drug exhibits. And so the lab director calls the police, the cops show up. And so now I've got narcotics agents facing off against Rochester cops and things are getting tense. And finally I said, okay, fellas, here's how it's going to work. You got your guns. We got our guns. We also have the 101st Airborne. We can, <laughs> I can send for them if we have to, uh, but I don't want to do that because, you know, there's a lot of trouble, you know, they got to get on airplanes. They got to fly. They may jump in or we may bring them in by trucks, but Ultimately, we're going to get your drug exhibits. And so they said, yeah, that's a good point. And they put their guns away <laughs> and we took all the exhibits. So Trump goes to Trump Towers and they try and arrest Trump. I think he may say, make my day. Uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll, see. Yeah, I mean, we'll see who does know, what here. Well, I mean, put it this way. before If I'm Trump, before I go to New York, I'm going to make sure I drain as much of the swamp as possible. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. I'm going to need to make sure that I've got some loyal folks at the Pentagon. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. You know, Talk or at that. least some, at least some, uh, some uh, base commanders that I can, that I can get on the horn on and give a direct presidential order to. Um, yeah. Because, you know, you, you're, you start taking on that late Roman empire of, kind of uh kind of uh uh spirit to these proceedings <laughs> and it's it, it's not it's not especially comforting no. um but it's it's it it's also maybe a little more interesting than the normal course of 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 action here um well uh, certainly the entertainment know. value is there uh i mean yeah trump needs a praetorian guard um, he does. He absolutely. When does. when he went across Lafayette Square to view the church that had been burned down by the BLM rioters, and Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, went with him. All of a sudden, Milley issues an apology. I shouldn't have done that. That was like a political act. I remember the days because I was in Washington during the riots following Martin Luther King's assassination. When regular Army troops and regular U.S. Marines were put into Washington to protect the White House, the Capitol, and other key points of the government, Milley was acting like, oh, we could never be involved in anything like that. I mean, that's that's a domestic issue, you know. Uh, I, re I remember it. Also, the U.S. military being used to secure our borders. I mean, that's why we have all those army bases down in the southwestern part of the United States. They were put there to to protect the, the southern border from invasion. 
Uh, with a guy like Milley, he's going to say, oh, no, that's that's a police issue. We can't get involved in anything like that. This is how crazy yeah. things have become in our government. So, yeah, you're right. Trump is going to need a Praetorian guard that will answer only to him to get the job done. Um, you know, and it, it's something you'd really rather not have to yeah. think about. Yeah. But yeah. when it's as corrupted as it is... And this is, you know, we kind of talked before the the, uh, the the show started about you know, maybe bring this out to a little bit larger thing. Actually, before we do that, we should at least talk a little bit about Hunter Biden and, and the, and the okay. Biden yeah. bribe Sure, because we were sure. going to do that. And I think we've had such a great discussion about Trump's indictments. Uh, I don't want to give this too short a shrift. Okay. Um, and, and I guess the you know the reason we, we would give it a short shrift is because neither one of us, I think believe that DOJ is going to actually act on any of this stuff while Biden is president. So yeah. this is at this point and probably maybe forever, this is going to remain a congressional inquiry rather than a true um, you know, DOJ process yeah. or a judicial process. Um, I mean, I, you know, what was your take on on, you know, this this indictment of Hunter with the on the federal gun charges? That's a that's a nothing, right? It's absolutely nothing. Number one, it was put together by the same guy, this uh, U.S. Attorney Weiss, Delaware U.S. Attorney, who is now Special Counsel Weiss. Weiss is the same guy who put together the totally bogus plea deal, where they were going to try and immunize Hunter Biden for all crimes. He was going to get. Uh, probation on the gun charge and they were going to immunize him for every other crime that he could be involved in. <clears throat> totally unprecedented, totally outrageous, but that was Weiss's handiwork. Okay, so now Weiss is special counsel and the deal is now out the window because the judge in Delaware caught it and started asking questions. And everybody said, gee, uh, judge, we don't know what you're talking about. And humming a humming a chef of the future. And they, and they all ran out of the courtroom. Okay, so now you got Weiss. He brings this gun charge indictment after five years of investigation, after four <laughs> years of the FBI sitting on Hunter Biden's laptop which gets into all kinds of criminality. Right. Finally, after five years, they come up with a gun charge that, that, that a competent prosecutor could have brought with about two weeks worth of inquiry. It's a paper case. He signs, he signs the form to buy the gun. He lies on the form. They got evidence coming out their ears that he's lying. Bing, bang, boom, charge him and let it go. I predict what's going to happen is they're going to do late on a Friday, probably around Christmas time when nobody's paying attention, they're going to do another diversion agreement. And they're going right. to say, okay, Hunter, you go away. Or if push comes to shove, Joe can just say, well, I love him like a son. He's the smartest guy I know. These charges are awful. I, I'm pardoning you. <laughs> and the people on CNN and MSNBC will say, yeah, he's a father. He's concerned about his son. It's perfectly reasonable. This is like... This is a moment of humanity for, for right. 
That's exactly. they've already done that, but they'll do it again. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I never watched those people. So yeah, it's always a father and he loves his son. I think it was like Nicole Wallace or one of these talking heads that trotted that crap out there. And it, it didn't go very well, but you know, they like they <laughs> that that trial balloon was floated and it yeah. landed with a splat, but they've already they've already done it. Why not do it again? Well now and 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 consider this. Weiss has let all of the tax charges that would relate to the Burisma shenanigans lapse. The statute has run. That takes not only Hunter's activities, but Joe's related activities off the table. Mm -hmm. And so what's really left? Um, the Farrah case is what's left, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah, you know, which and you know, yeah, which before, could be which could be something, but um, you know, you think about this before before Trump, nobody ever really got charged under Farah. It was just kind of like, you know, you should have gotten this uh this little piece of paper from the government before you started working for Saudi Arabia. Don't do it again, and nobody made an issue of it. Right. Then Trump gets elected, and all of a sudden, Michael Flynn who's a, a, a military hero, he gets jumped up and down on for a violation of fair. What was his violation? Well, before Trump was sworn in, Flynn, the incoming national security director, has a phone call with somebody from Russia. And they said, ah, yeah, yeah, this is terrible. This is terrible. <laughs> and the FBI goes over. And they ask him a bunch of nonsensical questions. And then they say, and he lied about it, too. I mean, the one yeah. thing I learned when I was in the Justice Department, we assumed everybody lied to us. Of course, we were dealing with mobsters. You know, you could say, you know, right. what time is it? And they could tell you the correct time. And you just assume they're lying because that's who they were. But right. now it's not safe to talk to the FBI. If they want to nail you, they will say, because they won't, they won't let you record the conversation. Everything. Well, see, I don't know why anybody would talk to the FBI at this point without recording the conversation. I wouldn't. Like, I'm going to record this. If not, I will. I have nothing to say. Exactly. Exactly. And you know, and you know, because they, what they do is, it's always a two-man team or a two-person team. Now, one does the questioning, and the other writes everything down. Well, you're stuck with whatever they say you said, and. Right. Uh, and, that's and, and that, like, I don't understand why there isn't some landmark, uh, you know, Supreme Court case that says, hey, in a in an era when video recording can be done on a phone, yeah, um, you know, written notes of an of a FBI interview yeah. are not sufficient as evidence. I mean, I, like in 1965, I can see that. Okay, that's fine, but now, I mean. No, you should. Everything should be recorded, um, and there should be video of it. Period. There is, yeah. There is. Look, the whole. We're making cops carry body cams, right? Yeah. But the FBI can't be made to at least make video recordings of of interviews with suspects and witnesses. Yeah, exactly. I, like to me, that that the, the imbalance in that is amazingly. Yeah, it's, it's absurd, and it's and and this is. I, mean, I don't understand why that bill doesn't sail through Congress. Like well, right now, the FBI has got to record, have a video recording of yeah. every single interaction it has with anyone in the public. Yeah. Um, like I agree. I agree. They, <laughs> because the, 
the, the fact of the matter is, if you give the FBI 302 to defense counsel, you know, you have to produce all the exculpatory evidence. So they give you, they, they call, the government calls a witness to testify. They got to give you, if they have 302s on the witness, you know, you give them, you turn that over to the defense. But the defense isn't allowed to question based on the FBI 302. They can't say, you know, didn't you tell agent so-and-so X, Y, and Z? Objection sustained. That's just the agent's notes. That's just the, you know, it's just. But you so, charge based on. Yeah, but if the government wanted to get you, they'd say, well, wait a minute, you told agent so-and-so, and they'll put agent so-and-so on the stand, and he'll get out his 302 and say, yeah, General Flynn told me that he was a communist agent, and uh, we could all go to hell, and <laughs> say, well, he's guilty. Um, so that's how that's how the game is played, and look, I, look, I had <laughs> lots and lots of friends in the old FBI I won't I won't talk to FBI agents. If if two of them showed up at my door today, I just say, nice seeing you, get lost. Because it's not safe to talk to them. It isn't safe. Yeah. I mean, the Mike Flynn case proved that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Yeah. That you know, no, nobody with a brain should should sit down with the FBI. Well, look at what they're under any circumstances. Look at what they're doing. They're doing SWAT raids on people who uh, stood stand too close to abortion clinics. We had a case here locally of a, of a guy. He was at a, a pregnancy uh, center about- Oh, you're uh, talking about Mark Howe. Yeah. Exactly. 50 feet yeah. away or whatever from the abortion clinic. And um, he had his 12-year-old son with him. And some escort from the abortion clinic came over and got in the kid's face and was saying, your father's an evil man. He's a bad man, blah, 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 blah. He hates women. And Hawk said, just leave my kid alone. And the guy kept going. And so he gave he gave this guy a shove and the guy fell down. So he, this guy calls the Philly cops. This is, for those of us who know and love the Philly cops, he calls the Philly cops, they show up. They look the guy over and he says, hey, this guy pushed me down. They go, so? And they get in their car and leave. So he goes and files a private criminal complaint with Larry Krasner, a George Soros prosecutor. Right. And he doesn't show up for court. So that case gets dismissed. And then the next thing you know, a couple of years later, Mark Hout finds out he's being investigated by the feds for attacking this guy from the abortion clinic. <laughs> and so violating that federal uh, statute against yeah, uh, yeah, basically yeah. rioting in an abortion clinic. Yeah, you can't, yeah, hands off abortion clinics, whatever the statute is. Yeah. And so Hauk hires a lawyer who happens to be a former federal prosecutor, well known to the U.S. Attorney's Office in Philadelphia. And the lawyer contacts the prosecutor and said, Well, you know, if you're going to do something with this guy, we'll surrender. Just let us know when you want them. I'll bring them down to the courthouse. You can process them and we'll do whatever. Never hears from the prosecutor again. The next thing they find out is an FBI SWAT team shows up with ballistic shields and M16 automatic rifles and the whole the whole deal pounding on the front door at seven in the morning. And Hauk has like seven or eight kids. 
these guys come in with their machine guns. The kids are screaming in fear and they grab Hauk and don't even let him get dressed. Just throw him in the car and drive him off. That's our FBI. This is what they're concerned about today. If you show up and you protest at a PTA meeting or a school board meeting, boom, they're on you're it. Terrorist. Right. Yeah, you're a, you're a you're a domestic terrorist. Now it's if you're a Catholic and you're, you're oh yeah, your group is a Latin mass. Now all of a sudden you're yeah. you know you're you're under suspicion. <laughs> Amen. Just it's, I mean, you you want it you want you want to go looking for trouble? Just say Dominus Vibiscum et Conspiracy two two oh. You're hey, man's talking Latin. That's right out of the exactly. map. Get him. Uh, it's yeah. crazy. It's, it's utter it, craziness. Well, it's it's you know this is a um, I mean it's a very strange moment yeah. um, because this is I mean this is under no circumstances is this the country that um, that the founders envisioned um, you know and it, it, like it wasn't even the country we envisioned twenty years ago no well, this has happened years, fifteen so years ago yeah, it's happened yeah. so quickly and you know the FBI used to stand for something. Now they're just, you know, that that wonderful congresswoman from uh, Indiana, uh, Victoria Sparts, she was born in Ukraine and she was questioning uh, Attorney General Garland. And she said, do you understand that people are, you know, Garland had started his remarks by saying, well, you know, my grandparents were Jews who came from Belarus and some of them died, you know, some of our relatives died in the Holocaust, and they came to this country because of the rule of law, and yeah, da, 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 da. okay, fine. And Spart says, well, that's very inspiring. I came from a similar country, from Ukraine, and I came here believing in America and in the rule of law. But do you realize that people are afraid of your department? And she went into the whole thing about what the FBI and the Department of Justice has been doing to ordinary Americans. And she capped it all off with saying, it's like KGB. And I thought, give that woman a medal because she yeah. just summed it up. Well, you know, it, it makes me wonder if it's possible to reconfigure this whole thing. Um, do you actually need an FBI? I mean, I, I know there are parts of it, like the crime lab, I certainly would like to keep. Yeah. I mean, Trust me, you have worked with that. Can you run a can you run a society with either a much diminished FBI or or you know uh, an FBI that's kind of broken apart into some component parts, some of which maybe get downloaded to the states? We um, made I mean, until is it a productive it, discussion to think about that? Yeah, look, we made it until the 1920s without an FBI. How did we manage that? I mean, what's happened with the FBI is it has mutated into something that nobody recognizes. Right. Uh, and I would I would cut and slash their budget. I think that's what the House really ought to be doing, because Christopher Ray is basically stiff arming them. And I think they ought to teach them a lesson, you know, yeah. just start cutting their budget and let them figure out what the appropriate response is then. <laughs> but the FBI well, so is doing so much of the federal they, government. That is the answer, right? Which yeah. is to just gut it and say, you're going to have to go back to your core functions that everybody recognizes are your functions. These are the things that you can do. These are the things that will fund. 
everything else goes because first of all, we don't have the money for it. Second of all, we want our freedom back. Third well, of all, there's such a thing as the 10th Amendment that you guys have been violating for decades and we want to go back to. So well, some yeah. of these things are state functions and that's it. And if New York wants to do it, but Alabama doesn't, that's federalism and it's a good thing. Yeah, well, look, the fact of the matter is nobody knows where all the money goes to start with. I mean, they've tried to audit the Defense Department for decades, and nobody can figure out where the money's gone. And, you know, when when Biden sends these billions, what, it's over $100 billion now to Ukraine, he's basically fishing that out of pants cuffs in Washington, because that's just walking around money to those guys. Right, uh, right. So... We don't know where the money's going. I mean, I can give you another anecdote. I was in the the organized crime strike force office in Buffalo, and this goes back to the 1970s. And a load of reel-to-reel tape recorders, very expensive tape recorders arrived, about 10 of them. And we're all looking at each other like, did you order these? No, I didn't order. Nobody knew anything about it. So I said, Perry, get on the phone and call the seat of government. <laughs> so I called down to, to Maine Justice. I said, yeah, we got about, uh, I don't know how many thousands of dollars worth of uh, tape recorders here. We didn't ask for them. What's going on? And they said, and he was talking to me like I was brain damaged. I said, look, Perry, we have to use up our appropriation this year. If we don't use it up, we get cut next year. And I said, so <laughs> that's why we have tape recorders we don't need or want? He said, just keep them. If you don't like them, sell them, give them away. <laughs> so we got to use up our appropriation. Now stop making trouble. Right. That's government to a T. That's yes. mutated. That's why we now have this behemoth that nobody knows where the money has gone. Nobody knows what anybody's doing. It's totally out of control. It's an administrative state that Congress can't begin to ride herd on. And I think the only way to regain control is just to start pulling the plug, cut the appropriations and let them sort it out. But that's not going to happen. I mean, yeah, the I mean, uniparty is the uniparty. They're not going to do that. It, it, you know, <laughs> you, the, the, the only way to even make a start of it, I think, and I may be wrong about this, is Trump began looking at moving pieces of the government out of Washington. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that I think probably is your that's kind of your and I don't know that I don't know that you could move DOJ out of DC. Okay. Oh, yeah. Which is at this point kind of the head of the snake. Like DOJ and the Pentagon, I'm not I'd, sure I'd how move, you would do that, but yeah, like yeah, the Department the, of Commerce could be in Miami, right? Yeah. The Department of Ag could be in, you know, Kansas City. Yeah. Uh DOE could very easily be in, you know, Odessa, Utah. Texas. Yeah. Or Utah yeah. or what. Like, yeah. You know, you start moving pieces of the government out um, and then maybe you break Washington down a little yeah. um, and then maybe that momentum can then be used to, to do something. Because one thing is if you move, let's say, the Department of Energy to Salt Lake City, a whole bunch of bureaucrats at the Department of Energy are going to decide that they don't want to go to Utah. Yeah. Yeah. They like it in Washington. And so they're going to leave the department and you have just cut. 15, 20% of the payroll. Well, that, that was, right that was, how, that was how J. Edgar Hoover used to get rid of agents. He transferred them to Butte, Montana, which he thought was the end of the earth. 
Right. And it worked for a while. Guys were quitting, but then word started filtering back. You know, Butte's not bad. <laughs> so, <laughs> but yeah, no, you're you're onto something. I mean, I would move the Department of Justice to Alabama, rural Alabama, and they can explain themselves to their neighbors every night about what they're up to. I mean, right now they're they are yeah. in this cocoon in DC, surrounded and and think about this. The the most prosperous counties in the United States ring Washington, D.C. Right. What's wrong with this picture? I mean, and nobody does anything for a living, right? No, they're all they either just, lobbyists or they're bureaucrats. Right? Yeah. And, and it's all a question of moving barrels of money around from one side of the room to the other. And, you know, you know, like a salad shooter spraying it out to their their respective constituents and right that's how people make their money but they don't make anything they make right. they make regulations and laws to make the rest of us miserable but they they reward their their friends and punish their enemies by turning the money hose one way or the other <clears throat> and that's what accounts for the wealthiest counties in the United States uh, it's got, I think it's got to stop, but you know, I'm not holding my breath. I, I just, okay, so, so, uh, I, I guess this is a good place to, to, um, to progress to this kind of final stage of the conversation, which is, yeah. um, how does this stuff end? Like, you know, like we're, we're talking about very unsustainable things, right? Whether yeah. it's the Trump uh indictments or the sort of biden bribes thing that's percolating in congress but that will not be adjudicated in any way of uh you know that we would recognize within the judicial system and we're talking about this kind of broken bizarre federal government that that sets money on fire and and does the same through our liberties um mm -hmm. as well as the rule of law so you know Take this dog's breakfast and make some sense of it at the end of the day, if you would. Briefly, by the way. <laughs> How does it end? I, I think it ends badly. I don't think there's going to be any way to, to take this thing apart. Look, you know, the, the House is now talking about doing an impeachment of Joe Biden. We all know that's not going to happen. Because if they impeach Biden and God forbid he gets convicted in the Senate, then Kamala Harris becomes president. I mean, right. this is not good for the nation. So that's his insurance policy. Um, clearly, the man should be impeached. He's he, he is in refusing to enforce the law at our southern border. It's having disastrous consequences for the country. And by the way, it's it's all intended. I mean, they they want these people coming in, um, and, and let me let me interject this real quick before you yeah, go any go further. Yeah. Um, okay, so there's at least a reasonable suspicion that all the Burisma money and these Ukrainian bribes, you know, we we could we could have done the whole thing about Shokin. Everybody here knows the score on Victor yeah. Shokin's firing and all the rest of that, so we right. don't really need to belabor that. But the point is. All of that has kind of translated into this rather suspect situation with the Ukraine war, right? Yeah. 
Uh, we know that there was Chinese money that flowed into the Bidens. We've seen the effect of Biden administration policy with respect to our trade deficit with China, which is the largest it's ever been, and some of these other sort of policy things where, uh, you know, American policy toward China is not particularly calibrated to our advantage, per se. Mm -hmm. but you see those examples. Then you see the southern border and the utter enrichment of the cartels in Mexico. And, you know, here's Congress and you've got Comer and he's talking about, look, we're going to find we're going to we're finding more money. We're finding more potential bribes. Like. You know, what odds would you lay that eventually somebody could tie uh, this money that Biden's got to cartels based on, you know, what we've already seen. I mean, to me, it's the non-smoking gun, but yeah. I don't know how, look, the wide open border and, hey, we're going to flood the country with illegals and eventually they're going to be Democrat voters. Well, like, I get all that. Yeah. But it's a political negative beyond question at this point. Because you're actually losing the current citizens who are Hispanics, because it's their neighborhoods across the country that are being destroyed by these illegals, yeah. right? I mean, their hospitals and their ERs is <clears throat> full. The schools are are beyond full. I mean, like the whole, it's a quality of life issue from San Antonio, which currently has four hundred thousand illegals in a city that used to have a population of one point eight million. Yeah absolutely insane and all these other places in the same way so hispanic americans american citizens are starting to take a look at the republican party and are actually moving even blacks are beginning to move largely because the presence of illegals in places like south side chicago has yeah. been very deleterious you're seeing it in new york city and some of these other places so politically it doesn't even work for them Okay, I mean, you're taking like a long view, but the problem is, is that you're risking short term. None of it makes sense. Fentanyl, look, there's no defending that under any any possible circumstance. Yeah. So, like, why would you even, especially when yeah. the word is out, everybody knows it. Why would you persist in these policies? Like, that's my question. It's 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 beyond you know just standard Democrat stuff. To me, it's sinister. Well, it's, very, it's very sinister. And, and you know, the same thing's going on in Europe. And some people maintain that there is, if you go back to the World Economic Forum and all those Dr. Evil type guys, uh, that this is just all part of their plan to eradicate Eurocentric civilization. And they're doing a good job of it. But keep in mind, and this is something that nobody talks about. In terms of our open southern border, one of the outfits that's in favor of this is the Chamber of Commerce. Why? Because they get cheap labor. <clears throat> if you if you want to employ an illegal alien, you've got all the power over that person. He doesn't come equipped with the same employment rights that an American citizen comes with. He doesn't have any bargaining power. 
if you if he makes too much of a stink, you just call immigration or whatever, or you you know you can get rid of him. You you don't like his looks, he's fired, and he's got no recourse, like an American would with all the EEOC rights and all the rest of that. Uh, so they're in favor of it. They they like this because it's cheap labor. Um, that cheap labor happens to be displacing black voters, and the same with with um, with Hispanic voters. And at least here in Philadelphia, and working class white people too. Oh yeah, sure, sure. But the, the interestingly, here in Philadelphia, there is a a small but growing group of black voters who would never <laughs> have ever voted Republican. And they're beginning to understand they were doing better under Trump than they're doing under Biden. And yeah. a lot of it has to do with the open Southern border. They're the ones who are taking it on the chin. You know, I'm living out there in the suburbs, you know, with, you know, perfectly comfortable. It's not affecting me. I'm retired and I'm just watching this like it's the NFL uh, you know, people are just bashing each other, you know, okay, keep it up. But for people who are trying to make a living, especially working class people, this open border has been a total disaster. And, you know, this latest Washington Post poll that the Washington Post is herniating itself to claim that oh, it's, it's an outlier. Right. It's got Trump nine points ahead of Biden. Mm -hmm. I mean, from the Washington Post, where, number one, I never trust their polls. They're always slanted towards the Democrat. And number two, Trump doesn't poll all that well anyhow. There are a lot of people who, you know, for them, Trump yeah, is like a secret sin. Yeah, they're, they're poll reticent. They won't answer, right? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> I think, I mean, I find it hard to believe that Trump's going to get reelected, but I think all the signs are there. And I hope it happens just for the entertainment value alone. But uh, well, what you may not, which you, you might not assume, <laughs> is coming right on the heels of that ABC News Washington Post poll um, that had him up nine, Harris X came out with a poll on Monday and he was up 46, 41 in that one. So, you know, not nine points, but you're starting to see a Trump polling lead on Biden. Well, um, yeah, and, and Trump and in both polls. He's he's 41 in the Harris X poll. He's 42 in the in the ABC News poll. So Trump, he's in the low 40s against Trump. Which, yeah. and I'm not saying that this is like the evidence of some ironclad trend or any of that. But it's you know it's two polls in a row. Um, well, Trump himself, Trump himself said it though. He said he doesn't believe Biden's going to be the candidate, right? And I think a lot of people, I know I'm thinking that there's no way. I mean, Biden doesn't even know what planet he's on, and there's just no way they can they can put that guy up as a candidate. And I've heard discussions among my professional political friends that uh, probably what <laughs> excuse me, what's going to happen is. At the the Democrat convention, they're going to decide Biden's got to go, and they're going to bring in Gavin Newsom or Michelle Obama, and they'll be nominated by acclamation, and then we got a whole new game plan, and maybe we do, uh, but 
you know, Trump doubts it's going to be Biden. And frankly, I doubt it's going to be Biden as well. Yeah, like I've, I've got a piece at the Spectator uh, that went up uh, Tuesday morning. We're recording this Tuesday afternoon. Um, and it basically is, you know, makes zero assumptions about the 2024 presidential race because, you know, all of the uh, underpinnings of those assumptions are shaky at this point. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and one of the key things is, is you know, is the is the Joe Biden piece. Um, I, you know, you see this guy's performance now. Extrapolate that six months from. Yeah. I mean, I you know, you're you're looking at a Woodrow Wilson finale type of presidency here. And, yeah. And uh, you know, and, and that actually casts Jill Biden as Edith Wilson. Uh, who ran the country for the last year and change of, of you know, that's that's doctor, 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 Jill. Jill. I'm so sorry with the community yeah. college PhD. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I'm reading education or something. Yeah. And it's really kind of funny because <laughs> at this point, the Democrat Party is 100 percent geared to the awfuls, right? The affluent white female uh, uh, leftists. Yeah. Of which Jill Biden is the avatar. Um, and uh, I, I do a show in Chicago, uh, you know, once a week or so on uh, 560 AM, which is the iHeart station over there, Dan Prof's show. Oh, and yeah. I got this kind of argument um, because, you know, my whole thing is, is look, Calorama is what runs the government, right? Not the White House. This is still the Obama presidency. Yeah. Um, and it's the Obama minions that are in charge of everything. And they're going to they're going to decide who the presidential candidate for the Democrats is, um, mm. because that's what they did in 2020. I mean, the two worst yeah. candidates on the stage at those debates were Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. And that was ended up being <laughs> the president and the vice president. That's all your, the proof you need. Right. Um, and so, you know, when they decide they're not viable with Biden, then it's probably Kamala Harris because they don't have anybody unless they can somehow dragoon Michelle in Prof answer is, no, 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 no. Don't undersell Jill Biden and her willingness to go to the mat to keep Joe or what's left of Joe um, in charge because she's the sort of power behind the throne that people aren't giving credit to. Yeah. You know, it might be right. Um, you know, I mean, I like you can see some evidence that like someone like Jill Biden is making decisions. Um, you know, it, they're not smart decisions and they're kind of, they're kind of the, you know, the, on behalf of, and for the awfuls, yeah. um, who is Jill's people. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm throwing it out there cause I'm not sure that that's true, but I'm not sure that it's false. Either. Yeah. yeah. Like the, the, the normal rules don't apply as long as we have unverified and unverifiable mail-in ballots. We're never going to see another honest election in this country. I mean, you know, one of the states, swing states, came out with a ruling that uh, they're banning drop boxes. Well, that's a step in the right direction. But the fact of the matter is they can manufacture as many fake ballots as they need to put, you know, my pet hamster into the White House, if that's what they wanted to do. Um, and so polling is interesting and crowd size is interesting. Trump 
in my estimation, won a landslide victory in 2020. But with all the cheating that went on and the manipulation, I mean, here in Pennsylvania, it was just rampant. And as with here in Pennsylvania and elsewhere in the country, I mean, you look at Brian Kemp and Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State in Georgia, <clears throat> the Republicans were happy to be rid of Trump. And I think in 2024, if Trump is the candidate, as it looks like he's going to be, he's going to have the same problem. There's going to be nobody in his corner, and the Democrats are going to be able to use these unverified and unverifiable mail-in ballots to win wherever they, they want to use them. Uh, I mean, it, well, that, that assumes the Republicans don't actually learn to play that game. Well, um, it, and, it, you know, and it's, it's, you don't want to do it that way. But to me, I look at a place like Georgia, you know, you've got Fulton County, you've got DeKalb County, you've got um, whatever the one in Savannah, where Savannah is. Okay. Yeah. And all the country counties in Georgia are deep red, right? With a sheriff whose family has been in charge of the place for generations. They used to be Democrats. And, you know, I'm like, Okay, well, turn in your vote late and make sure that it's full of the graveyard vote that votes religiously Republican. Find out what the vote looks like in Fulton and then beat it. It's terrible. It's it's an awful way to run elections. But if <clears throat> the other side is going to do this stuff, then either you do it or, you know, get ready for the civil war that's ultimately going to You understand though, that in Georgia, there are 157 counties, which means you're going to have to have at least uh, 154 middle-of-the-night water main breaks to suspend okay. boat counting. I mean, yeah. Well, look, this happens once. Bolton, why not? Well, this is the thing. This happens once, and now you call the sum. Yeah. Okay, we figured out your game and we played it better than you. Yeah. Is it time for us to not play this game anymore? Yeah. Right. Um, I mean, you know, that's essentially by a different definition. It's essentially what happened in 1876, yeah. um, where you know you had both sides. You know, like sort of everybody figured out Tammany Hall's game and then kind of did the same thing. And yeah. at that point, it was like, all right, we need to make a grand bargain because we're going to be right back in the Civil War if we don't. And so the trade was, all right, the Republicans get to keep running the country, um, but Reconstruction is over. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, some of these big city Democrat machines are going to largely be left alone. And it was sort of a grand bargain that actually worked fairly well until the early 30s. Yeah. Um, and, you know, maybe that's the answer, right? It's just like, okay, well, if you want to break down rule of law, you're going to find out what that smells like on your end. Um, and when you get tired of it, then <laughs> come to the table and let's make a new consensus. I don't know that there's a way to fix this any other way other than the Republicans are going to have to get as dirty as the Democrats. Well, I just I don't think that you're going to prevail on their good faith to change things back to what they were. I just hope you're ready to have the FBI come over to your house later on 
quick story and then we're going to probably have to have to okay. wrap this up i've actually had that happen so uh i wrote a thing at my site the hayride here in louisiana a few years ago and this is, this has a little bit of a news hook now um because uh jeff landry who's currently the attorney general is running for governor the cycle is this year he's overwhelmingly likely to win and Landry is, you know, an old kind of Tea Party Republican. He went in in 2010 with the rest of these guys. And he's very much a sort of what I call a revivalist conservative uh, who's willing to, you know, get aggressive in practicing the kind of reforms that folks on the right want right now. Anyway, so uh, Jeff kind of uh, invented this fundraising tactic, which is that he has a fishing camp in the middle of absolutely nowhere about halfway between baton rouge and lafayette like on the atchafalaya river <laughs> um at which he has uh you know at this fishing camp like they do an alligator hunting season every september in louisiana and so he goes and he buys a whole bunch of tags and he brings people to his camp it's like the, for an alligator hunt, right and you know you pay five thousand dollars which is the max contribution and you get an alligator tag you go shoot an alligator get your picture taken with it and all this kind of stuff so um and i can't remember the name of this guy he was the democrat from new york city who went around with the big boutonniere on his lapel um and for the life of me i can't remember this idiot's name uh but he was kind of this, you know, sort of effeminate old guy and did this whole thing. But he was a big animal rights goofball. And so he puts out this fundraising email and it's all, oh, these, you know, these ruffians from Louisiana. They want to kill these innocent alligators just to raise money for politics. And alligators an invasive, it's not an invasive species. Pest is what it is, right? I mean, alligators will kill your dog and all. I mean, like, you know, so. Hunting alligators is actually a really good thing, not yeah. just for for like the other animals, right? So this whole thing was totally absurd. And so I go write this thing at the Heron. Like, okay, fine. Next time what Landry needs to do is he needs to hunt effeminate politicians with boutonnieres. <laughs> I'm just being facetious, obviously. Two FBI agents show um, up at my door. Um, and it's like, he's got a printout. Did you write this? I'm like, of course I wrote it. It's a joke. Like, what's the matter with you? You know? And uh, and these guys were kind of sheepish. I mean, like, yeah, well, they sent yeah. us out here. Like, okay, fine. Tell the congressman staffers that, you know, the old line, you know, F them if they can't take a joke, right? So the answer <laughs> is, since they can't take a joke, F them, right? Like, and that's what these guys all laughed. And then we talked about football for five minutes and then they left. There you go. So I, I'm guessing the next the next batch of FBI agents that I get probably aren't going to be as friendly, but my response is largely the same, right? Like, you guys are standing by as the republic is being torn apart. Um, do your job, right? Yeah. Do your job. Well, the the uh, politician you're talking about would that be Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan? No, by any chance it was. Uh, gosh, I can't remember this. Because he used to wear a boutonniere. Yeah, he. But yeah, this yeah. is this is post. This is early. This is 2011, 2012. Oh, okay. Yeah, um, in gone. there, and and he's the guy's gone now, and I cannot remember what his name is. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, he was you know he was just this this New York, uh, you know, old kind of old school liberal, not like the the snarling leftist of of the common yeah. variety, but he was a 
you know, he was one of these kind of boutique animal rights activist clowns that did this whole thing. Um, and and uh, was it Gary something? I can't remember. Um, but yeah, that, this was his his deal. And you know, he's he so he sent FBI agents to come interview me about this piece that well, I wrote. So now, so now you're talking about overthrowing the government. So I think it's inevitable. And by the way, if the FBI is listening to this, I disagree with everything Scott just said. I <laughs> oh, good American, hang yeah. out to dry with those. Yeah, things. and and I'm condemning it right now, so you don't need to come visit me. Uh, isn't it pathetic? When, what have we um, come down to? Well, I mean, you know, it's it's such a um, it's such a, a an unfortunate thing that that you know we're talking in these and these things, but. This is what you get when when there are SWAT raids on a former president of the United States over documents, yeah. um, and and you know abortion uh, anti-abortion activists or parents at school board meetings or practitioners of the Catholic Mass or Latin Mass. Yeah, um, very bad. You know, and that's just it's it's too much, and it it can't continue. Um, and like you said, there's a very good possibility it ends bad. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of this depends on the Republicans and whether they're willing to defund it before it has to end that. Um, I don't, because I don't really, see the will. I don't see the will among the Republicans. Uh, I have very look, I've stayed out of politics my whole life because I don't understand the process. And frankly, from having seen it up close on both the Democrat and the Republican side, because I've worked for Democrats, very prominent Democrats who went on to become governor and mayor and uh, uh, chair of the DNC, for example. Uh, and all nice guys, liked them a lot, but I couldn't do for 10 seconds what they do for a living. And um, I don't just don't have a lot of confidence that they stand for anything other than themselves. It all comes down to how will this affect me and my prospects? And if that's your lodestar, if that's what's guiding you through life, then I think we got a lot of we got a big problem on our hands because we have a government of narcissists who are totally self-involved. So how do you run a country with people like that? It's, it's, it's not easy for sure. And the only way to do it is to absolutely limit the amount of power that these people have over their fellow man. Yeah. But you're going to ask them to give that power up voluntarily because I don't know how else to do it. Yeah. Um, and that's a that's a that's a very that's a difficult formula to make add up. So. Yeah, it's true. It's true. But uh... well, on that happy note, <laughs> now that now that uh, George well... and I have sealed our fates. Uh, or maybe at least I have. You know, he, he may be able to trade himself out, but uh, I doubt but I'm it. Well, for sure. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm I'm going to go now and get drunk. That's <laughs> <laughs> by George. Save yourself. Uh, <laughs> we're, we're, we'll declare this uh, episode of the Spectacle Podcast <laughs> closed. Um, in the event that we have one next week. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, it'll be uh, Melissa and I, or perhaps it'll just be Melissa. We'll see if I can make bail uh, in, in advance of the 
in advance of the show uh, next week. But this has been great, George. Tell folks how they can uh, how they can see your stuff uh, uh, on a on a regular basis. Okay. Well, I write for the American Spectator, um, and it's all behind a paywall. But if you want to read my stuff for free, I have a blog called knowledgeisgood.net. All one word, knowledgeisgood.net. I took the name from Animal House, one of the greatest movies ever made. <clears throat> and so, so the name of my blog is knowledgeisgood.net. And you can follow everything that I write, not only for the spectator, but just generally. Because I have written for other publications, the Philadelphia Inquirer, the Baltimore Sun, the Federalist. And uh, so there's a whole body of stuff that you can access through my website. Very good. And, uh, you know, just for those of you that are not totally familiar with me at this point, I'm a contributing editor at the American Spectator. So you can see my and George stu George's stuff at spectator.org. I'm also the publisher of the Hayride.com and Reviver.com. Uh, and have uh, one book out, The Revivalist Manifesto, and another one out, Revenge, Racism, Revenge, and Ruin, which is about Barack Obama's uh, effect on America, cultural, political, and economic. That'll be out next month through Calamo Press. With that, ladies and gentlemen, we will declare this episode of The Spectacle closed. See you next week.